Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, now I pray as we uh, are about to hear your word proclaimed, Father, that it would be uh, the means of your fatherly care to us, that we would be warned by its warnings, that we would be comforted by its comforts, and that all this would work towards, most of all, us resting in the gospel of Jesus Christ, abiding in him, and confident that if his blood has paid for our debts and his resurrection has broken the curse for us, he is ours forevermore. And I pray that that would be hope offered to those who have no hope and rest to those in need of peace and joy in our sorrow that Christ is ours forevermore. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Please take a seat. When I was in my undergraduate degree, um, the school required all of its arts and humanities majors to take two science courses to fit some requirement about getting a comprehensive education. But what was funny about that was that in order for them to actually make sure that the arts students could pass their science courses, they had to create these special dumbed down science courses for arts and humanities students. So I went into school saying, maybe I'll learn something about astronomy or about physics. And I was told, we think that someone like you would probably prefer engineering with Play-Doh. <laughs> so one of these special science courses for idiots, which I took in my final semester, which is never the time to take a course that you need for credit and don't think you'll be good at, was grape and wine science. And that was not a good time for me to take a science course. So I did pass, but at the end of the day, all I can say that I really definitely learned, and my grades will attest to this, is that getting a pile of dirt to turn into a drinkable bottle of wine is a difficult and complex business. If you choose the wrong location, you fail. If you do not meticulously take care of your vines, you will fail. If you do not properly harvest the grapes, you will fail. If you leave the wine sitting too long on the skins or too short, you're going to fail. If you don't plan for all the things that could happen that you can't plan for, you're probably going to fail. In our passage this morning, Isaiah gives us another one of his word pictures in the form of a song. So you can imagine him standing in the middle of a public place and introducing his song saying, let me sing for my beloved, my love song concerning his vineyard. And everyone gathers round expecting to hear what seems like it's going to be just a lovely ballad only to have the true meaning of Isaiah's picture of the vineyard unfolded for them. This passage marks the final note of the premise, the preface of the book of Isaiah, summarizing the state of Israel, the state that God's people are in at the time when Isaiah is called to be a prophet to them. And we'll hear about that calling next week. So let's enter into this final note of Isaiah's preface. We're going to read Isaiah 5, starting with verses 1 to 7. Isaiah chapter 5 starting with verses 1 to 7. Let me sing for my beloved, my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard, 
on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. He looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there for my vineyard to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold bloodshed and for righteousness, but behold an outcry. That closing stanza leaves us in no doubt what this word picture of the vineyard means. The vine dresser is the Lord and the vineyard is his people. So what is this song meant to illuminate about God's relationship with them? Our first point is this. The Lord cultivated a vineyard. Isaiah begins his song by talking about how the beloved, the Lord cultivates his people. God spared no energy, no expense, no love that was necessary. He found the most fertile hill. He dug out the vineyard. He cleared, he planted, he gave the vineyard every opportunity to produce a good harvest. In Psalm 80, you see this metaphor again, more clearly articulating how this cultivation actually happened in Israel's history. Psalm 80, verse 8 to 11. You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out its branches to the sea and its shoots to the river. Everything that God does for his people all through their history in the Old Testament, his care for them, saving them from slavery, giving them a land, giving them its wealth, is all God's cultivation. And he's cultivated them with the expectation of them producing a crop, producing good fruit. God wants to get glory to be magnified for how his vineyard will show his good cultivation. This good fruit will be evidence of his work as a vine dresser. Consider when Jesus turned water into wine at Cana. Did anybody read that parable and expect that Jesus was going to make bad wine? No, the host praises the best wine that has been served at the wedding. Likewise, God desires that his cultivation of Israel will be met with good fruit, righteousness, and justice, as he says. But seemingly against all expectation, Isaiah tells us that the opposite happened. He looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And that is our second point. The vineyard produced wild grapes. 
You can imagine this sudden turn in Isaiah's supposed love song, taking all of his listeners off guard. Even after all of the beloved's love and care and cultivation, the vineyard only produces, as the literal rendering goes, stink fruit. Isaiah contrasts the good fruit that God desired with the stink fruit that he got in verse 7. He looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. Jeremiah applies this same metaphor and says that while God planted Israel to be a good vine, the whole vine of Israel turned wild. Jeremiah 2, 21, yet I planted you a choice vine, holy of pure seed. How then have you turned degenerate and become a wild vine? This idea of producing wild grapes or becoming degenerate, producing a wild vine, suggests that the vineyard looks as though it has never been cultivated. Its produce seems to suggest that nobody has ever cared for it. Israel, for all of its love and care from God, winds up looking just like all of the nations that God had never cultivated, that God had never cared for. So God asks his people, what should a vineyard owner do? He has poured such love and care and cultivation into a people. And after all of that care, it looks just like all of the wild weeds and briars surrounding the vineyard that he has never put his hand to. What ought he to do? And this is our third point. The Lord lays his vineyard to waste. Isaiah asks in his song, and now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, he turns and asks the vineyard, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done for it? Judge, God says, what ought he to do? What does he owe his vineyard? Every single thing he could do to cultivate it has been done. There is nothing left. You could call in a landscaper and say, what is left to do? And he'd say, nothing. You did it all. There is no more recourse. It is not just the right of the vineyard owner, but now it is the responsibility of the vineyard owner to lay the vineyard to waste. And so he will remove all of those protections that guarded it from the world around. He will stop his cultivation, even the good weather, so that the wild tendencies of the vineyard will just take over. It will be destroyed from without and from within. In the passage that follows in Isaiah 5, he's going to clarify using a series of woes and warnings, the kind of rotten harvest that Israel was yielding and God's response to it. And Isaiah will demonstrate just as he has asked Israel that God's response will be just the punishment will be appropriate to every transgression. So let's start those woes and warnings, reading verses 8 to 17. Isaiah 5, 8 to 17. Woe to those who join house to house, who add field to field until there is no more room, and you are made to dwell alone in the midst of the land. The Lord of hosts has sworn in my hearing, surely many houses shall be desolate, Large and beautiful houses without inhabitant, for ten acres of vineyard shall yield but one bath, and a homer of seed shall yield but an ephah. 
Woe to those who rise early in the morning that they may run after strong drink, who tarry late in the evening as wine inflames them. They have lyre and harp, tambourine and flute and wine at their feasts. but They do not regard the deeds of the Lord or see the work of his hands. Therefore, my people go into exile for lack of knowledge. Their honored men go hungry and their multitude is parched with thirst. Therefore, Sheol has enlarged its appetite and opened its mouth beyond measure. Add the nobility of Jerusalem and her multitude will go down. Her revelers and he who exalts in her. Man is humbled and each one is brought low. And the eyes of the haughty are brought low. But the Lord of hosts is exalted in justice. And the holy God shows himself holy in righteousness. Then shall the lambs graze as in their pasture. And nomads shall eat among the ruins of the rich. You can really see in this passage how Israel took all of that vine dresser's cultivation and turned it into stink fruit. The Lord gave his people a land. That land yielded rich produce. He gave them a kingdom. Wealth was pouring into Israel. This should have produced a prosperous, generous Nation, And instead, these gifts were hoarded by the wealthy to feed their love of pleasure. Land that could have supported many people was gathered up so it could all support just one rich man who lived alone. The wine that should have sat at many tables was gathered and hoarded at one table so a man could get drunk and stay drunk. The food that could have fed many people was taken and hoarded so one man could live in gluttony. What then should God do? Continue to provide these resources so they can be hoarded by the rich? Continue now just to feed their sin? No, he will remove those gifts. The wealth, the fruit of the land, those houses will be left desolate. Those vineyards will stop producing the gluttons will now go hungry and what is more just as the appetites of those people were insatiable god will turn sheol the grave itself into a glutton it will have an insatiable appetite so that it will be able to swallow up these sinners so that their pride will no longer pollute god's land friends how many of god's gifts have we treated as our right to hoard, contributing to our pleasures rather than stewarding them for the love of others and the glory of God? These sins are common in our culture. Of course they are. But we are the ones that claim that we are God's people. We claim that everything that we have is a gift from him. Have we fallen to that same selfish sin as those around us who have no hope other than their pleasures? Do we use all of the wealth and produce of this world to care for our brothers and sisters, or do we turn our homes and our whole lives into fortresses where we can protect the pleasures that we want for ourselves from others and their needs? Are we sucking up all of the nutrients that God provided so we would have gifts to share with others? only so that we could produce stink fruit for ourselves. We so quickly buy into our affluent culture's secret hopelessness. Get what you want when you can get it. 
because tomorrow we die. For them, this is all we have. But what testimony is it of the Lord's care and our hope in him when we behave the same way? God warns us, when you live as though there is no hope in him, hell does have an insatiable appetite for those who hoard his gifts and reject the giver. Like a wise vineyard owner, one day it will be just and right that he purge his creation so that it will be free of such wicked, wild, hoarding weeds. Isaiah moves on from these practical excesses to the way that God's people's minds have become converted. We'll turn to verse 18 and finish the chapter. Verse 18. Woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of falsehood, who draw sin as with cart ropes, who say, let him be quick, let him speed his work that we may see it. Let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw near and let it come that we may know it. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and valiant men at mixing strong drink, who acquit the guilty for a bribe and deprive the innocent of his right. Therefore, as the tongue of fire devours the stubble, And as dry grass sinks down in the flames, so their root will be as rottenness and their blossom go up like dust. For they have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts and have despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people and he stretched out his hand against them and struck them and the mountains quaked and their corpses were as refuse in the midst of the streets. For all this, his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. He will raise a signal for the nations far away and whistle for them from the ends of the earth. And behold, quickly, speedily they come. None is weary, none stumbles, none slumbers or sleeps. Not a waistband is loose, not a sandal strap broken. Their arrows are sharp. All their bows are bent. Their horses' hooves seem like flint and their wheels like the whirlwind. Their roaring is like a lion. Like young lions, they roar, they growl and seize their prey. They carry it off and none can rescue. They will growl over it on that day, like the growling of the sea. And if one looks to the land, behold, darkness and distress, and the light is darkened by its clouds. This is the word of the Lord. Now you see how deeply the rottenness has pervaded the hearts of God's people. At the heart of their sin is pride. They are wise in their own eyes. They are so confident in themselves that they are ready to sit back and judge God, to evaluate on their terms whether or not he is good or just, whether or not he's even real. They look out at the expanse of heaven and earth that God created, and they say, let us see your work that we might know it. Here's my criteria for trusting in you. Here's my criteria for thinking that you're a good person. Now, as they mock God, according to their own view, of course, what is just and good will increasingly be dictated by what pleases them, what comforts them, what they enjoy. So their whole view of justice as they judge God will be turned backwards. 
We would call bitter sweet, darkness light, evil good, if it suited what we wanted. Our heroes are those who can get the most drunk. And is that not true? Celebrities and socialites, professional, famous people, I want to be just like them. Why? Because they work the least and have the best time. Again, of course, this so easily describes our culture who openly rejects God. But we have to ask, how has this perversion made inroads into our churches, into our hearts? What lifestyle do you envy or idolize? What is your idea of a good life? Do you wish that the church was just a little bit more preoccupied with the demands and the desires of the secular culture that you feel so akin to because of your shared affiliations or passions or pleasures? Is your daily life dictated more by what God's word says or more by what satisfies your pleasures and needs? Do you even judge whether or not God is a good God based on whether or not you are comfortable and have got all of the worldly things that you have decided are necessary for you? Are those the terms by which you tell God he can show that he is good? Isaiah tells us in his song, when all God's tender care results in such backwards people who pursue their own designs, the opposite of his designs for them. What is left for him to do? What would it be just to do with these wicked men trying to judge him? Decimate the vineyard. Lower its walls, let in the wild boars. In the context of Isaiah, this meant letting foreign nations come to crush Israel. Isaiah says, not only does God not stop these nations, he called for them. He whistled for them like his dogs. He raised up a signal. All of you come over here and bring justice against my selfish people. Just like he told the clouds to withhold their rain. This is the final note of Isaiah's introduction. No hope, no promises, no respite. The Lord who cultivated and cared for this people will exercise his right to remove his care and destroy the vineyard. This is a warning of the exile into which Israel was headed. Jesus gives a similar warning in the parable that Roger read for us. When those who are in God's vineyard have so abused God's gifts withheld from him its good fruit, even rejecting the son of the vineyard owner. What is it just for the master to do? He will reject them. He will throw them out of his vineyard. Jesus even echoes the woes of Isaiah in his woes to the Pharisees and scribes, devouring others' houses, perverting justice. How much more astounding that the scribes and teachers of Jesus' day fell into this sin as they read and taught the warnings of Isaiah. We should be so careful, friends, 
Our pride as we read the warnings of Isaiah, the added warnings of Jesus, the added warnings of epistles, and somehow not apply any of the warnings and woes of God's word to us. Not letting them clearly speak of our own failures. Not letting them draw us back to humility. Using the warnings that should have brought us back to tell God that we are fine and even judge him based upon our love of our pleasures and comforts. So let the warnings sink in. But as we close this preface from Isaiah, we are left with an awkward question. Is God a bad vine dresser? Is he just constantly wasting his energy? Constantly failing to produce a vineyard that will bear good fruit? I want to go back to Psalm 80. This is a psalm that Israel would already have known how to sing when they heard Isaiah's song. God had already given them this response that they could sing to Isaiah's warning. Psalm 80, reading verses 14 to 19. Psalm 80 is also just spoken of how God has decimated his vineyard. And the people cry out, turn again, O God of hosts. Look down from heaven and see. Have regard for this vine, the stalk that your right hand planted. And for the son whom you made strong for yourself. They have burned it with fire. They have cut it down. May they perish at the rebuke of your face. But let your hand be on the man of your right hand the son of man whom you have made strong for yourself, then we shall not turn back from you. Give us life and we will call upon your name. Restore us, O Lord God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. This psalm is a cry from a ruined vineyard that God would remember them and restore them to bring back his countenance, his cultivation, his care for them. Not just by reversing his judgments, sending away the nations and the oppressors, but by changing them, turning them so that they would be able to produce good fruit. This restoration, says the psalm, will come when God's hand rests on the man of his right hand. Hand, the son of man whom God has made strong. Now, this reference does something interesting here. It points on the one hand to the people themselves. Son of my right hand is a translation of Benjamin, but it also points at one particular son, a particular son of man. And this is a reality that we are going to see also used and applied regularly through Isaiah. References that in one sense speak of God's people, but then also point to a single man. Isaiah thus shows us that the fate of the whole people will increasingly be bound up in one person who stands in their place. Israel was already learning by this point in history that their fate was bound up in the fate of their kings, the fate of the sons of David. And now Isaiah in these coming prophecies about a servant or an offspring is going to point both to Israel 
and both to the one man to whom her fate was bound, so closely bound that he could even stand in her place. This perhaps reaches its climax, of course, in Isaiah 53, when you see that the one man might even be able to stand in the people's place to bear their iniquities and take their punishments. Isaiah, just like Psalm 80, references this idea of the vine or the vineyard by pointing both to the man and to the people. In our passage last week, right before Isaiah 5, the Lord promised that he had a plan to raise up a fruitful branch. Isaiah 4 verse 2. In that day, the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious and the fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel. Any hope for anyone in God's people rested on the promise that a fruitful branch would one day arise. If this branch could somehow become the root of the vineyard, then the whole vineyard could be restored. And this is our final point. The vineyard will thrive when it abides in the true vine. Let's turn to John 15 verses 1 to 9. The vineyard will thrive when it abides in the true vine. Jesus said, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because the word that I have spoken to you. So abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my word abides in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. This is the word of the Lord. When God's vineyard, even with the very best cultivation, could only produce wild grapes, God raised up a branch, a true vine. And that vine responded to all of God's loving care by bearing perfect fruit. This was the perfect human life of Jesus. But God's goal was not just to have a vineyard of one vine. His plan was that this perfect vine would be even more glorified by then being united with all the wild vines. That they then would be grafted onto him. Then Jesus could bear that wrath that Isaiah warned of in our passage this morning, that just response for a vineyard producing stink fruit, he could bear it. And then when he had done that, passing through that wrath, he could offer to all those vines that had been grafted onto him nourishment to live and thrive and flourish and produce good fruit. 
This is the only hope for any of us. Apart from Christ, we are wild vines producing stinking fruit. God allowed this vineyard to get so rotten again and again so that Israel would be reminded so that it would be got into our thick skulls that apart from Christ, everyone, Israel, just like the nations around her, are just wild vines producing wild fruit. But through Christ, every wild vine and weed is invited to come be grafted into the vine. This is the only hope for any one of us. Paul tells us that we have this hope. He shifts the metaphor to an olive tree. And he points out that just as Isaiah said, yes, many people through history were pruned off of God's good nourishing root. They were removed from his care because of their unbelief. In Jeremiah's words, they were wild vines, not a part of his pleasant planting. But, says Paul, you Gentiles, although a wild olive shoot were grafted in among the others and share now in the nourishing root of the olive tree. Now, neither Jesus nor Paul has removed Isaiah's warning. Jesus said, any branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Paul also warns, just as God pruned off those branches in the past, so will he continue to prune off those who are arrogant. If you claim to be a part of God's vineyard, even to be abiding in the vine while you only produce rotten fruit, while you still live according to your pleasures and passions and your view of justice, you should be afraid that you are in fact a wild vine who will be cut off from God's vineyard. But the comfort that is being offered here is that remaining in the true vine is not a matter of proving that you can produce good fruit. Apart from that vine, apart from Jesus, everyone, both Jew and Gentile, gets rejected, has gone wild. Can only produce wild fruit. And so Jesus, Paul, Isaiah, all warn us, first and foremost, against pride. Don't trust yourself. Don't try and prove to God that you are righteous and wise. Don't try and prove it to each other. Don't come telling God why you deserve a place in the vineyard, why you make a good candidate for a good vine. That is actually judging God according to your wisdom. Let me tell you what a good vine looks like. Let me tell you who you have to receive. Instead, lay down that striving, lay down that pride and rest, rest in Jesus, abide in the nourishment that comes from trusting him and being united with him. Even trust that through him to his glory, you will start to produce good fruit that pleases and glorifies God. Friend, are you tired of living apart from God? Are you tired of the confusion and the perversion that comes from trying to work out 
what a just and righteous person is on your own terms? Have you looked out at the world and agreed that you see the insanity, the stink fruit that comes from all of that? Do you see it in your own heart? Hell has an open mouth waiting to devour everyone who is so proud. So stop with the self-reliance. Stop trying to prove yourself to God or anyone. Give it up and have faith in Jesus. You can rest there. You can abide there. You will abide there forever. If your trust is in him. And Christian, have you got caught up in trying to prove that you still deserve a place in this vineyard? Doesn't that make you weary? Are you watching your best efforts fail? Then abide in Christ. Abide in the one who was planted in your place to produce fruit you couldn't, who even bore that wrath that you deserved so that you could be nourished in him unto an eternally secure place in his vineyard. Oh, can you rest in that, Christian? Abide in my love, our Savior tells us. Now, as more and more people trust in that love, as more and more people abide in that vine and are grafted into Jesus, we will rejoice to see that God's vineyard grows and flourishes until it reaches its full glory. Isaiah sings another song of the vineyard later in his prophecy, chapter 27, verses 2 to 6. In that day, a pleasant vineyard, oh, sing of it. I, the Lord, am its keeper. Every moment I water it, lest anyone punish it. I keep it night and day. I have no wrath. Would that I had thorns and briars to battle. I would march against them. I would burn them up together. Or... Let them lay hold of my protection. Let them make peace with me. Let them make peace with me. In the days to come, Jacob shall take root. Israel shall blossom and put forth shoots and fill the whole world with fruit. God's people by their own strength in their own merits can produce a stinking rotten vineyard fit to be laid to waste, fit to be rejected, on our own, each of us is a wild vine, a briar and a thorn, a threat to God's vineyard. But now Isaiah gets to sing a better song. Because in Christ, we can see that despite all of our failures, God will produce a flourishing, blossoming vineyard. And that vineyard will touch every corner of the globe. The vineyard of Israel will go beyond river and mountain. And what will happen to those briars and thorns that threatened it? Those Jews who rejected him, those Gentiles who opposed him. Yes, we see some who march against him will be burned up together. They will face his wrath to make view for his vineyard or wonder of wonders, says God. Let those briars and thorns, those enemies come make peace with him, even abide in him. Let those wicked weeds that deserve God's wrath 
those wild grapes and those wild vines that were cut off, those that started wild, Jew and Gentile, let them become a part of the vineyard. And in that way, God's pleasant vineyard will not just last, but it will fill all creation. As more people abide in Christ, the vine is spreading over the whole world. Even now you see it, don't you? More people resting in the peace of Christ as the vine grows until the day when there will be no more wrath. Every wild vine and weed will either be burned away or miraculously renewed at peace with God and abiding in the true vine. Let us then keep our confidence in Christ. Let us proclaim the gospel boldly, not the gospel of our works, but of comfort of rest and trusting in Jesus. And then watch as that pleasant vineyard, oh, sing of it, thrives forever as it abides in the love of Jesus. I'd like to call our elders forward because today we are going to take part in the Lord's Supper. And here you get to see and remember and 